and welcome to Rising. Well, yesterday was an utterly chaotic day <laughs> in the news media, and we are still processing it, and we'll continue to do so on the show today. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. I'm glad to still see you in your chair with all of the firings <laughs> going around here. Rising has not so far been affected, and we will endeavor to keep it that way. Uh, Tee it off for us. Well, Robbie, new details are emerging surrounding the bombshell exit of Tucker Carlson from Fox News. The Los Angeles Times' Steve Battaglio reports that the decision to fire Carlson came straight from the Murdochs. That's Carlson, that Carlson's exit is related to the sex discrimination lawsuit filed by former Fox producer Abby Grossberg, and that Murdoch was also concerned over Carlson's coverage of the January 6th Capitol attacks. If you need a refresher, Grossberg is suing Fox News and claims she was overworked, undervalued, denied opportunities for promotion while working on Tucker Carlson tonight because she is a woman. She says she was subjected to, quote, vile, sexist stereotypes as, quote, the staff's distaste and disdain for women infiltrated almost every workday decision. Mm. Grossberg tweeted in response to Carlson's exit, quote, I think this is great for America. It's a big win for viewers of cable news, just not those who watch Fox News. So this is all as Carlson's exit wiped out over $690 million in market value from Fox News Corp in a manner of hours. Mm. Um, so we'll have to see about that. Look, obviously, this, you know, this is an ongoing lawsuit. This is an ex-employee who claims the conditions were not good. You know, those claims are going to be adjudicated. I have no idea if, if they're valid or not. Uh, we're mostly curious about them right now because we're trying to understand what led to this very seemingly abrupt sudden departure of Fox's biggest star yeah. and a clearly a major moneymaker for the network based on that drop. Um, my parsing of all the reporting mm. suggests so there was a lot going on here, but I, I think the picture is a little clearer than it was yesterday. Um, it seems to me that the most likely theory is that it is based on Washington Post reporting about Tucker Carlson's communications with, um, with his producer, who was also let go, that were because of discovery in the Dominion lawsuit, these were private messages, you know, mm -hmm. private text messages, other things about other people at Fox, including the bosses, mm -hmm. that then were seen by the bosses as a result of the Dominion lawsuit. Those, they haven't been made public yet, but yeah. they were seen by the whole team at Fox, the legal team trying to prepare against Dominion as a result of the lawsuit, as a result of discovery. And those were things that bosses fire people for saying, regardless yeah. of how important you seem to the company. I, I get that argument. And that's that. It still seems to me like, but for some other underlying issues with Tucker Carlson, the outcome might not have been the same. So for example, I can see a world in which, you know, the bosses have been fighting to keep you in the face of some mm -hmm. of the January 6th coverage, in the face of the, um, you know, your, the way your messages expose the company to liability in the Dominion lawsuit, despite some of these sexual harassment allegations. But when you find out that you've been behind the back calling the bosses that were trying to save your hide every name in the book, they say, never mind, I'm, I'm leaving you to the wolves. You have to fight on your own. But, you know, I wouldn't, I, I'm at this point not inclined to reject these, the rationale around Ms. Grossberg for a couple of reasons. One, of course, we know that Fox News had to pay $90 million for these similar types of sexual harassment claims, what that was back in like 2017 or so. Um, great movie, Bombshell, Char Charlie's Theron, all of well, that. Similar in that they're both some gender-based or sexual, but yes. they're a little because no one is alleging or has ever alleged credibly whatsoever anything having to do with Tucker in terms of actual 
you know, quid pro quo or oh, sure. like, like, like physical, actual physical actual, contact. It's, it's the, for, for sure. Yeah. I just mean generally speaking, yeah. having sexual harassment in the workplace. Here's a little bit of color about what Ms. Grossberg says she experienced. Um, she says that on her first uh, day of work, uh, working for Mr. Carlson, she discovered the office was decorated with large pictures of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi wearing a plunging swimsuit. She said she was once called into the top producer's office to be asked whether Ms. Bartiromo was having a sexual relationship with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. So that's the the, the sort of thing that she's talking about. Yeah, well— But moreover, it's interesting that— I don't know uh, why the latter thing counts as any kind of—I mean— if somebody had, I mean, now that's a, I think that's a wild and unfounded idea, but if someone had some actual suspicion of, of a, of a Fox anchor having a relationship with someone who's being covered, I, I that wouldn't be a, well, it depends know, on if you think it's a real investigative I, I question or whether it's a purient interest in trying to paint a colleague in a, in a sexual light. I definitely think it depends on context, hmm. but besides that, there's a, there was an earlier story where she alleged that she was being quote set up in the Dominion case. They were she alleges that they that Fox lawyers were trying to put her and Miss Bartiromo in a position to take the blame for Fox's you know discussion of the conspiracy theory around the voting machines, and she resisted that and pushed back against that. Now. Bartiromo seems to be very much a part of a lot of the misinformation that was set on the air. And so it is interesting that at some point, Grossberg tried to kind of hitch her wagon and her fate to Ms. Bartiromo, where she does appear to be much more guilty in that particular context. But it, it is interesting that Grossberg has been in the mix of this story mm -hmm. for quite some time. So I'm not entirely ready to read her out of the core decision to get rid of uh, Tucker mm -hmm. Carlson at this point. The other thing I wanted to say about this subject is that, look, there, there was a lot of—there was an outpouring of support for Tucker among conservative thinkers, writers, pundits yesterday. Um, they all invited him to join, <laughs> to join the Daily Wire. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy Boring made the invite. Glenn Beck made the invite for The Blade. I'm sure Newsmax would take him. I'm sure <laughs> One America would take him. I'm sure he could co-host a podcast with Megyn Kelly. I'm sure he, he has endless opportunities. He will still be massively successful. Um, I do think, however, that—look, the Murdochs know their company pretty well mm -hmm. by now. And it has been the case—so a, a lot of people are talking about how irreplaceable he is. And I— I want to be careful here because he is very unique and he's very popular and he's beloved in conservative circles. He's a kingmaker. He is a shepherd of a somewhat different kind of conservative ideology, populist on so many on economic issues, social conservative, and then very stridently different on foreign policy. And he has helped guide the Republican Party in that direction. So I'm not trying to overstate his influence at all. It is massive. Uh, however, Fox has succeeded in the past at replacing people who seemed irreplaceable. Uh, people thought Glenn Beck was going to be hard to replace. The Five is the hugest show on cable news, which is what replaced Glenn Beck. Bill O'Reilly was was the the, the network's fixture. You know the the person most associated with the network. His mm -hmm. face was Fox News for years and years and years and years, and he was replaced by Tucker. Mm. Megyn Kelly was replaced. Um, viewer Fox viewers are loyal. I, they. I think they like Tucker. The evidence shows that there is a Tucker bump. He, he's a little bit more popular than anyone else on the network. But they have a lot of people waiting in the wings. And I think their calculation is that they can find someone to shepherd the 8 p.m. hour. And the viewers will watch because they like the brand and they like Fox News and they like the content. That's obviously the strategic gamble they're taking here. But it is one that has 
absolutely yeah. paid off uh, paid off for them in the past. So I, I, I'm pushing back a little bit on a, a lot of voices I saw saying, oh, this was such a, you know, this is Fox News shooting itself in the foot. They'll never succeed. Nobody's, everybody's going to tune out, you know, without Tucker, they're nothing. Okay, we'll see yeah, about that. I'm inclined I tend to, to doubt agree. It. I mean, it's a whole media enterprise with any number of hosts that are very popular and have their own fan bases. And I think your point about the five, I mean, we talk a lot about the popularity of Tucker Carlson's show and probably mm -hmm. not enough about the popularity of the five. Yeah. They've got other uh, kind of real estate, as it were, that is very, very valuable over there. And I do think that, frankly, it's probably time to mint another Carl a Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson, I think, was the first mainstream figure of his ilk who was willing to embrace this kind of Trumpian populism. Uh, that New York Times profile from last summer did a really good job, I think, of describing how he promoted Trumpism without having that necessary devotion to Trump as a, as a character, which gives him his own aura, which gives him his own messaging platform that doesn't tie him so closely to all of his mistakes and gives him, I think, the ability to move. But now that he's popularized that, that brand of politics, there are a lot of other people who have embraced it and who have successfully, you know, had media success arguing those kinds of points. And, you know, I do think there are a lot of people who are really ready to fill that space. There's a question as to whether or not Fox News is going to want to hire somebody like that or hire a more traditional person to fill that role, because Tucker Carlson, in that vein, did cause problems for the program. Playing, you know, footsie the way he did, you know, with the reveal of that J January 6th footage about a month ago, um, making the choice to go ahead and promote some of these uh, uh, Dominion voting system uh, conspiracists when he knew from, which we know from the Dominion disclosures, he knew behind the scenes that that stuff wasn't true, has obviously gotten the, the network into a lot of trouble. So are they going to want to revert to a more traditional type that roots for war in Ukraine and does the kind of things that Sean Hannity does? That's an open question. Yeah, that will be, uh, especially on, on foreign policy, the the kind of idiosyncratic views of the person who replaces Tucker yeah, will matter in that way. And we'll still, obviously, we're, gonna, we're waiting to learn what Tucker is going to do next. Um, but I, I'm sure he will still, if he wants to, maybe he wants to, you know, he's made 20 million at Fox for the last several years. He could do nothing if he wants to. But uh, I assume he'll still want to have an impact on the dialogue. And he'll have no shortage of opportunities to do so. He's reinvented himself a really a very impressive number of times. He's now had news shows on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. He founded The Daily Caller, um, where I, I worked for him before I joined Reason Magazine like 10 years ago. Uh, so it's From, it's from bow tie to regular tie, maybe no tie. Maybe no tie. <laughs> <laughs> Tucker Carlson, unleashed, unedited, uncut. Is that what we're about to get? We'll be watching. <laughs> More rising after this. News broke yesterday that longtime host at CNN Don Lemon was fired, according to a report in The New York Times. A heated interview he conducted with GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy played a role in the firing. Now, we have a clip of the contentious exchange. Let's watch. Black people secured their freedoms after the Civil War. It is a historical fact, Don. Just study it. Only after their Second Amendment rights had, were secured. They That's were not secured their freedoms after the Civil War. That is not, you're, you are discounting uh, uh, Reconstruction. You're discounting a whole host of things that happened after the Civil War when it comes to African Americans, including the whole reason that the Civil Rights Movement happened is because black people did not secure their freedoms after the Civil War. And, and that things turned around. People were, tried to change the freedoms that were supposed and to And you know how they the got Civil it? War they got their Second Amendment.
Amendment rights, and they actually got the NRA played a big role in that. But today, down the, the fine, NRA did the, not play a big well, absolutely, role. Absolutely, they trained that black Americans how to use firearms. That's a lie. That's not. The NRA did not play a big role. This is. Co-host Poppy Harlow watched on as the pair continued bickering. We have the gone fact through that I find civil rights revolution in this country. You are sitting here telling an African American about the rights and what you find insulting about the the, the way I live, the skin I live in every day. Here's and where I you and I have the a freedoms different point that of black view. and white that black people don't have in this he, country, here, and that black people do have. Well, here's country. where you and I have a different point of view. I think we should be able to express our views regardless of the color of our skin. We should have this debate I'm not saying you without me regarding views, you as a black I think it's man, insulting that but you're me regarding you as a fellow citizen. That you're sitting here, whatever ethnicity you are, explaining to me whatever ethnicity. What it's you, like to be black. Whatever in ethnicity I'm, I'm I'll tell you what I am. I'm an Indian American. I'm proud of it. But I think we should have this debate. Black, white, doesn't matter. I think we should have this on debate on the content of the ideas. If you do it, you should do it in an honest way and in a I fair think, way. And what you're doing is not an honest and fair way. Okay? It, with, but we appreciate you coming on. With Thank due respect, Don, I look Thank forward to continuing that conversation. We'll Thank continue you. The conversation. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Lemon said he was stunned at the news and posted a message on Twitter yesterday morning saying the network didn't tell him he was let go and his agent broke the news to him instead. A point the network denied, writing, quote, Don Lemon's statement about this morning's events is inaccurate. He was offered an opportunity to meet with management, but instead released a statement on Twitter. CNN CEO Chris Licht released a statement after Lemon's firing, thanking Lemon for his contributions to the network and said he will always be a part of the CNN family. Mm. Okay, Robbie, do you think that that exchange warrants uh, Don Lemon's firing? I don't think that exchange had anything to do with his firing. No. I think they had already decided to fire him. The timing is too suspicious. I think they had always planned. He was not going to make it through this year. They were going to get rid of him. I, we'd seen some reporting, like insidery mm -hmm. reporting, like alert. The variety going to be out mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. I think he was going to be gone, and CNN was waiting, was waiting for a good time to do it. And as soon as the Tucker Carlson news broke, they're like, this is a good time to do it because it's going to be overshadowed by the Tucker Carlson news. And they, so I don't think it had anything to do with the, I mean, maybe that was a, yet another, they were like, oh my God, when can we part ways with this guy? But I think they were getting rid of him anyway, and they picked this moment because of the Tucker Carlson news. Yeah, it's That's interesting. That's my theory. The, the exchange actually ended, like, very Pleasantly. Pleasantly. I thought it was good that they shook hands. I think that substantively, Don Lemon was right uh, about the chronology of events in Yeah, I, I Googled it a little bit. I, I can, couldn't find much evidence that the NRIA specifically had anything to do with uh, with what he was saying. I'll, you um, know, and, 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 and NRA was founded in, in the late 19th century. Any argument that says that that was linked to substantive rights for black people when the Civil War, mm -hmm. which was a substantive moment for black Americans, happened before that, and, and Reconstruction right. happened after that, and the Civil Rights era happened after that, as Don Lemon I pointed out. I mean, the NRA out, was originally run by union, union by generals yeah. who had aided in the effort, obviously, to subdue right. the but Confederacy and free black people. Linking the founding but, of the NRA yeah. when there's another 60 years of legal discrimination against black people in America is just on its face an incorrect argument. I think where Don Lemon starts to go a little astray is rooting his argument in, in the fact that he is, is black. Now, certainly, I think that his experiences are valuable here and that he is likely to have more insight into these things. But of course, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're right on something like this just because you're black. And then that quip about whatever race you are to Vivek, yeah, that was a, I think, probably didn't sit well. Because right, on one now. hand, he's appealing to, to race as sort of a trump card in this debate. Well, no, he's and appealing he, to his blackness, not but, race generally speaking. But then he disparages 
the racial identity of well, the guests. No, he's saying that Vivek is not black, and that yeah. Vivek. I, and, and I gotta say, if if Don Lemon had started spouting off about 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 a bunch of like nonsensical, inaccurate stuff about Indian American history or Indian Indian history, Vivek would probably have been like, "What are you talking about? And how dare you?" think that you know more about this than I do, and he mm -hmm. would probably be right to say that. So I don't think that he was wrong in feeling like Vivek doesn't have the experience. He obviously doesn't have the knowledge base and doesn't seem to have the experience to know what to say accurately, but the way he said it was going to cause him to look like the loser in the argument, point blank, period. I also think that he can make an argument. I would be happy to flip it around and say, I strongly believe that black people should own guns. I think yeah. that more black people should totally. own guns. That would be and the let that lie it. where it is, because yeah. our history of gun control in this country has actually been conservatives, Reagan in California, making that state have the strongest gun laws in the union because of a deep fear that black people shouldn't have guns. Um, so it seems to me to be a win-win. Either people, black people get guns or we get gun control. <laughs> black people get guns. <laughs> That's what I have to say. Uh, how, and then Poppy Harlow just kind of sitting there on the side. She checked her phone a couple times. You know, I, I, that, that happens. Sometimes you're going at it with a guest or yeah. I'm going at it with a guest and the other person is like, well, I'll see what's going on on Twitter. Uh, this is going to continue for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, um, and of course, she has been there for a lot of other Don Lemon moments that involved her personally. His, he, he not only made that very famous, we played it yesterday in our segment about this, um, statement about uh, women being past their prime with Nikki Haley, but apparently, according to this uh, Variety article that came out earlier this month, Don Lemon has been saying a whole host of misogynistic statements, uh, gotten into feuds with his co female co-hosts, uh, having what is described in the article as, quote, diva-like behavior for a long time. So I, I tend to agree with you that this feels like the tip of the iceberg, if anything, and perhaps just a PR move to get this news out in a way that it was going to get uh, over overshadowed by the Tucker Carlson news. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... Definitely what was going on here, but what a what a Monday it was. <laughs> <laughs> now, I also saw, by the way, people were posting um, that it seems like it was just Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins at the top of the news segment this morning. Um, they apparently addressed it. I don't know if we can we can get that clip going, but they 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 recognized uh, Don Lemon's departure and seem to have carried on just the two of them as co-hosts. It's unclear if he's going to get replaced. I know we talked at length mm -hmm. about what Fox News is going to do about the enormous hole that Tucker Carlson has left in the lineup. Is it the same struggle right. here over at CNN, or was it kind of past? Fascist yeah, they crime. could they could continue <laughs> they could continue the show just the two of them. I, he didn't like being from what I gathered. He didn't like being slotted in that morning slot and then having to share the show with two other people. You know, he was previously in the evenings um, liked that arrangement much better. But again, the, the, the move, moving him to the mornings. It, the writing was on the wall. Maybe he didn't see it. I, I find that hard to believe that he didn't see it. But uh, they were they were gonna they were gonna do this. Yeah, so. Anybody who has enjoyed as I have Don Lemon's uh, New Year's Eve's specials, mm -hmm. where he very famously has a great time announcing the new year, knows that he is in fact an evening person. <laughs> made the transition to mornings especially easily. Didn't they decree that it was, there was too much drinking in the CNN oh, yeah. New too Year's much, Eve stuff? Too much is a relative term. Yeah. There was too much for Chris Licht. Not enough maybe for some of our, the viewers. Right, but, uh... right. Yeah, the good, the good old days. We'll see where he ends up. I'm arriving with you right after this.
The White House is eyeing Neera Tanden as a possible replacement for President Biden's domestic policy advisor, Susan Rice, this according to several reports. Tanden has served as an advisor to the Biden administration and a staff secretary, and though she was originally tapped to spearhead Biden's Office of Management and Budget, her nomination was met with opposition and eventually withdrawn. Prior to working in the administration, Tandon led the powerful Washington think tank Center for American Progress. News broke yesterday that Rice is stepping down, and if Tandon is confirmed, she will have big shoes to fill. Before joining the Biden White House, Rice served as President Obama's U.N. ambassador and then later as a national security advisor. And in her current role in Biden's White House, she's helped oversee the passage of the COVID-19 relief bill, the bipartisan infrastructure revamp, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Neera Tandon is not an individual I would expect, expect that you would have much affection for. Am I wrong? There are few figures that animate and unite the left against them, like Neera Tandon. Because Neera Tandon has been a bete noir of left interests since long before Biden, mm -hmm. the first vote was cast for Biden. And in fact, perhaps the only successful a point of leverage the left has had in the Biden era has been to successfully fetch and bully online <laughs> until Neera Tanden was not made head of OMB. So Neera Tanden is, I would say, an attack dog for a Hillary Clinton mindset. Um, she was extremely hawkish. Uh, she first caught my attention when I believe Glenn Greenwald exposed that she had advocated uh, for like the take the oil approach in the Middle East. Yes. In order so that we could, uh, she, she was saying that if the budget is constraining us from engaging with the world, that was her term, mm -hmm. then maybe these oil rich nations should help, should pay us so that we can continue to engage with the world. In context, engaging with the world was the Libya intervention, which was a total disaster, you know, the, the latest at the time in a string of foreign policy blunders um, overseen by the, you know, bipartisan neoconservative continuity from Bush to Obama mm -hmm. that Hillary Clinton herself was very much a part of. Yeah. We learned a lot about uh, Neera Tandon's thinking on these things because she, a lot of her emails were leaked in the context of the Podesta leaks. So there was this email exchange between her and Faz Shakir, who went on to uh, be Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign manager, with this email titled, Should, we, Should Libya Pay Us Back? And mm -hmm. Faz is kind of trying to gently explain to her why the idea of disrupting a country and then bleeding it for resources is a bad idea. And her response is, oh, well, we have a giant deficit. They have a lot of oil. What's the problem here? This is this is obviously ours for the taking. Uh, and that is just the tip of the iceberg of the kind of craven position she's taken. So CAP, the Center for American Progress, is a centrist neoliberal institution that has as its goal, or and it's what it has done, I shouldn't say what its stated goals are, but in effect has promulgated policies that are perceived by the broader public to be uh, progressive, but are aimed at undermining sincere substantive reforms that are coming out of the left. So if Bernie says Medicare for all, Cap says, okay, what if we call this Medicare for all who want it, but it's really a privatization scheme, that, that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. They're like the Pete Buttigieg of policy groups. Um, and on top of 
being the head of an organization and founding an organization that has those kind of anti-progressive goals. She personally, her behavior at that institution and, and elsewhere has been, I think, below the standards that most progressives would like to see. She's extremely belligerent, or she was extremely belligerent, I believe, on social media. Yes. Um, again, attack dog kind of mindset, which is why ultimately when she was nominated to oversee OMB, uh, her nomination faltered because Joe Manchin said he wouldn't vote for her because she had been so cruel yes. on social media. For all the Bernie bros got attention, she openly partnered with some of the most hostile bots online. Not, I shouldn't say bots, they're real people, uh, but people like Ragnarok Lobster, who famously, you know, at Electric Brother, I'm sorry, that's his actual handle, mm -hmm. who was tweeting about wanting to... I mean, like calling down, uh, girls with Down syndrome sluts and saying just crazy, horrible stuff. She's out here wishing happy birthday and like th throwing her like mm. digital arm around these people and holding them in close embrace. She outed a sexual uh, harassment um, victim in a meeting. Uh, she has referred to uh, friends of the show, Lee Fong and, and, and Zed Jelani, as, uh, as, as little freaks, I believe, in response to the news that Faz was going on, Faz used to work at CAP, was going on to advise Bernie. She, she uh, emailed saying, you know about this? Jesus, makes sense. All these freaks after Hillary are like his spawn, Zed, Lee Fong. I mean, she is someone who has I, pulled no yeah. punches against the left. I, I recalled her being a major Russiagate person, mm -hmm. so I just Googled near a in Russiagate, and mm -hmm. what comes up is a Twitter exchange with Aaron Mate, mm -hmm. where, um, where she accuses him of running interference for Russian disinformation efforts. This is in... October of 2020, and he says, "Well, you're promoting Russiagate, and um, yeah, she's like, you're you're helping Trump because you're undermining the Russia narrative. It's yep. it's very te it's very textbook stuff, but she is so the audience understands. She is a particularly um, representative thought leader and 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 engaged person on probably all the worst excesses of like." Hillary Clinton-style yes. neoliberalism. Including some of the, the COVID misinformation early in the pandemic. You remember, it was the end of the Democratic primary, and the Sanders campaign was concerned about new CDC warnings that said that people shouldn't aggregate mm -hmm. in groups of more than 50. Um, you know, uh, this was all happening very quickly. And when I tweeted out, oh, these, there's this new CDC warning that is contravening what Simone Sanders, who was Biden's um, press secretary was saying at the time on the news, she quote tweets me and says, uh, is, is the Bernie campaign telling people not to vote? Like, because they very much wanted people to vote in the primary. They didn't want to postpone the primary, as some people were calling for at the time, until they got a, a handle on things. Then later, when it was in the general election, she started tweeting me on the exact opposite side of things, saying that, you know, Flor Florida's positive test rate seems to be going up quickly. People shouldn't be out here in the streets. The Republicans are trying to kill us, that kind of a vibe. So she's inconsistent. She's got really craven political motives. She very openly associates herself with people who are hateful mm -hmm. <laughs> and not progressive in the least. And she does all of this under this progressive banner, you know, Center for American Progress. So does Biden know that by picking her, he's provoking confrontation with the left? Is he so clueless he doesn't realize that this is someone who is uniquely reviled by progressives? Does he not care? And he's so he's so defeated your faction that he can rub salt yeah. in those wounds and it I doesn't mean, matter? I think, I think, so I joked that, that getting her, you know, 
uh, scuttling her appointment to OMB was the only thing the left had ever accomplished. I actually don't think it was about the left. Um, mm -hmm. We complained a lot, uh, and I think we made it more likely, perhaps, incrementally. But as you mentioned, Joe Manchin objected to her. Um, she's made a lot of enemies. Uh, and I think that this is more par for the course. The left has no power. It's unwilling to withhold its political support for liberal candidates, for Democratic Party candidates. And ultimately, they know they're not going to be—what are we going to do? We're going to yeah. stand up and vote for Biden. Most, most people, are, Bernie voters, are going to get a line and vote for Biden. Now, I do think that there is some sensitivity around this issue, which is part of why they've probably kind of announced this in the middle of this very busy news week and hoping that people have other fish to fry and aren't going to focus on this too much. Also, the left is kind of exhausted to have to have fought this fight and to have to do it all over again because they were going to appoint her somewhere. Look, Neera Tannen has been pretty terrible, but as a, that's... She's, she's earned her right. The, the things that she has done mean that the Biden administration owe her a place You're as well. You're saying the price of freedom is eternal vigilance against <laughs> Nero Tandon? I, I think that the left is probably going to be disappointed here. Um, but we'll see what happens. That could be the tagline of just about every segment we do. <laughs> so sorry. It's okay. It's life. More rising right after this. President Biden formally announced his 2024 re-election bid just moments ago. Let's watch. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. Because I know America. I know we're good and decent people. I know we're still a country that believes in honesty, respect, and treating each other with dignity. That we're a nation where we give hate no safe harbor. We believe that everyone is equal, that everyone should be given a fair shot to succeed in this country. Thank you for choosing Thank us. You. Every generation of Americans has faced a moment when they have to defend democracy. Stand up for our personal freedom. Stand up for the right to vote and our civil rights. And this is our moment. Here to discuss is 2024 presidential candidate and challenger for the Democratic nomination, Marianne Williamson. Marianne, thank you so much for joining Rising this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So polls show that many, many voters are not enthusiastic about a potential Biden-Trump rematch. What do you have to say to all those people out there who are who have fatigue about the idea of Biden running again and being up against Donald Trump? Well, the DNC should take those people's voices very, very seriously. I think given that video that you just showed, uh, any Democrat should be very concerned because that video does not show an administration in touch with the American people. Uh, the president said that his administration has been given about giving everybody a fair shot. But say that to the people who are wondering why, in fact, we haven't raised the minimum wage, why they didn't permanentize the child tax credit, why he didn't stand for the railroad workers against the railroad bosses. I think that video is very out of touch, and that's what people are feeling. I think that video shows... Um, 
uh, you know, I think uh, an entire younger generation would stay home in droves in response to what that video is advancing as the administration's pitch to the American people. The DNC, DNC should listen to those voices, to those high percentages, 51% of Democrats, 70% of Americans who say they want another possibility other than the president. And that's why it's so important that the DNC have debates and allow those of us, Bobby Kennedy and myself, to debate the president, because this is an important time for us to really consider what do we need to present to the American people in order to beat the Republicans in 2024. Now, of course, since the last time we spoke, RFK Jr. has also also entered the race. And just this morning, he was tweeting his criticism of the Democratic Party's failure to have a, a primary debate. And he this, his tweets were co-signed by none other than Elon Musk. Elon Musk, of course, attracts a, quite a bit of attention on Twitter. How do you how are you thinking about RFK's entry into the race? And do you think it will help you make the case for why Biden's challengers uh, need to have uh, more grace shown to them by the Democratic Party, be supported more by the Democratic Party, or shall I say, not be locked out by the Democratic Party? Or do you see it as drawing away from the message that you're trying to speak to the American people? Unlike the DNC, I stand for democracy everywhere, not just as a goal, but as a process. And if Bobby Kennedy feels moved to join the race, which obviously he has, I welcome him. This is what democracy is. Bobby's ideas and mine intersect in, in quite a few places and don't intersect in other places. This should be a debate. It should be Bobby Kennedy. It should be myself. It should be the president. And it should be anyone else who joins. Like I said, we need to discuss what is the right agenda and what is the right person to take on the Republicans in 2024? This should not be a decision that is just dictated uh, by the establishment elite at the DNC. What do you think the DNC is so afraid of deciding there should not be uh, debates? Excellent point. Uh, first of all, they should not be wary of democracy if, in fact, they claim to be the protectors of democracy. What they're afraid of is that the American people would look at another candidate and go, yeah, we actually think that would be the better person to run. The issue, we have two issues here. Number one, what's the best person and the best agenda to take on the Republicans in 2024? And also, what is the best agenda and the best person to lead this country into a fundamental economic reform, which is what I'm presenting, as opposed to the incremental approaches of the president? We have different agendas. Joe Biden has his I have mine. If the American people, the Democratic voters, or those who would be voting in that primary specifically, listen to the president's agenda and say, we want him, then it should be the president who is the nominee. But the people should decide, not the DNC. They should not be trying to shoehorn this president into the nomination. Marion, do you have a plan to get around the DNC's decision not to host debates, challenging Biden outside of the context of the DNC, hosting a separate debate with RFK Jr. and any other candidates that enter the race, for instance? I think right now what I'm most trying to do and everywhere that I campaign right now, I'm in Michigan. I spoke at Michigan State last night. Um, at, when I'm campaigning, I make it clear to the voters that you yourselves are going to have to demand a debate. Uh, you know, we, we campaign. There is a universe outside the grip of the DNC. On the other hand, the DNC is already showing its um, kind of iron hand here. There are places where I'm in, invisibilized or a real effort to sort of unperson any other uh, uh, candidate than the president. 
you know, this idea that no one but him is a serious candidate. I'll tell you what I'm serious about. I'm serious about the 68,000 people who die every year from lack of health care. I'm serious about the one in four Americans who are living with medical debt. I'm serious about the fact that a president who says that climate change is a is a it's an existential crisis has given more uh, oil drilling permits even than Trump did, has approved the Willow Project, and now approved exportation of liquefied natural, natural gas. I think that I'm a far more serious candidate for this moment in our history than the president is. One of your uh, fellow uh candidates, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., actually hit out at Fox News uh, yesterday after the news that Tucker Carlson was being ousted. He said, quote, Tucker told the truth about how greedy pharma advertisers controlled TV news content. For many years, Tucker has had the nation's biggest audience, averaging three and a half million, ten times the size of CNN. Fox just demonstrated the terrifying power of big pharma. You responded, tweeting, quote, Tucker Carlson is no hero. Wanted to give you the opportunity to expand on, you know, what you were getting at there and, and react, obviously, to this pretty big news? As any Democrat knows, uh, Tucker Carlson has made many racist comments, has made many comments that are an offense to the traditional values of the Democratic Party. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it is this um, interesting place that a lot of folks have been in where um, there are folks that identify broadly with the left, like Glenn Greenwald or Jimmy Dore, who have offered limited praise of Tucker Carlson and his decision, at very least, to allow them to share his platform to talk about issues like Julian Assange or um, uh, anti-war issues, things Sometimes like that. Sometimes not like. so limited praise, honestly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to be honest. And that, that has caused them to be seen in a certain light by other members of the left community, for sure. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I wonder how you—well, I'll say this. I do think that there is a way that they have been able to broaden their audience, for better or for worse, by having an openness to people who differ in meaningful ideological ways and moral ways in the ways that you've pointed out, um, without necessarily coming down so strongly on them in a kind of more absolute way. As someone who is seeking the presidency and has to figure out how to put together a pretty big tent of voters and who might have some advantages with independent voters, um, let's say in a general election context, how, do you, how would you negotiate that tension between, yes, the kinds of things that Tucker Carlson has said, which are <coughs> racist and distasteful and the like, and the, the choices that some people on the left have made to make kind of a, this limited partnership with him to you take advantage of his audience and his reach, et cetera? Look, what you call this tension is the vitality of democracy. And you're absolutely right. These, these hardline silos do not really apply. You know, even, even uh, Eisenhower said the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. Some people agree with Tucker Carlson about one thing and totally disagree on another. You're right about Julian Assange. And I agree uh, that uh, Julian Assange must be let out of Belmarsh prison. And Duck Tucker Carlson has also, in his views, displayed something very, very interesting. There there is on the right as well on the left a growing aversion to the overreach by uh, corporate entities. So you're right. There have been some times where he has stood for the people against corporate interests. There have been other times or against an overreach by corporate interests. Um, and that does display that the the old and that's what I felt about that video. That video applies to an America in 1995. Something new things are new dynamics are emerging. And uh, you're right. We 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 the idea that 
if you're blue, you think this. If you're red, you think that. No candidate who is really in touch with what's happening in the Amer with the American people today is speaking to that. We're speaking to a new Americanism. I know I am. I think people on the left as well as on the right know that when it comes to the economic despair, when it comes to the rigged system that people live at the effect of in far too many cases in this country, something has gone too far. There are Republicans who know this. There are Democrats who know this. There are independents who know this. And absolutely, I'm seeing all of them at my campaign events. Marianne, do you have any interest in running a third party if, as you say, that the DNC is just not at all accommodating to any dis potential dissent or challenge to Joe Biden? I'm going to do whatever I can as a citizen and as a candidate to keep the fascists out of the White House in 2024. I will do whatever that means. And some people would say that, that that sounds like the kind of language that folks use, generally speaking, when they ultimately say, well, we don't want Trump to win or we don't want whatever Republican to win, so we're ultimately going to encourage folks to vote for the Democratic candidate. And a lot of folks on the left are very frustrated with Bernie Sanders, for instance, for ultimately <clears throat> doing what they describe as sheep herding people back into the Democratic Party at the end of the day. And they see some progressive efforts as giving some voice to progressive concerns, but ultimately making sure they stay within the Democratic Democratic Party stable. You know, is that is that what you're saying? And if so, what do you say to folks who are, are over that style of politics? Well, first of all, some people would, say, would take what I said as meaning that. Some people would take what I just said as the exact opposite to that. Hmm. Um, and, and for that matter, you know, you can say an incremental approach. This is how I look at it. The, the, the Republicans don't even pretend, you know, they give they give crumbs to the American people. The Democrats, the corporatist Democrats give cookies. Well, you can't live on cookies either. On the other hand, you know, this is a very decision, you know, it's a pretty good decision, uh, an important decision to make. A question to ask ourselves is a little bit of help at the end better than no help, given that that still means millions of people who are helped. Um, my, what I said does not mean that at the end of the day I would necessarily uh, go with the Democratic Party. What I said does not mean that at the end of the day I would not. It means that at the end of the day I will do what my heart uh, tells me to do at that time. Should that time come, right now I'm planning to win the nomination. Hmm. Marianne Williamson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Russia has deployed a new battle tank in Ukraine, but according to the United Kingdom's defense minister, it's faced delays caused by a slew of manufacturing problems, making it unreliable. Quote, if Russia deploys T-14, it will likely primarily be used for propaganda purposes. Production is probably only in the low tens, while commanders are unlikely to trust the vehicle in combat. Mm. Speaking at the UN this week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and issued a stark warning that the world is at a dangerous threshold and that risk of global conflict is greater even than during the Cold War. Here he is taking a swipe at the International Monetary Fund, alleging it works to further U.S. global hegemony. 
clearly and openly the International Monetary Fund has morphed into a tool for the achievement of the goals of the United States and their allies, including goals of a military nature, in a desperate attempt to assert domin their domination by punishing their insubordinates, the United States has taken the path of destroying globalization, which for many years they have taunted, they have uh, raised up as the highest benefit of all of, human of humanity. Here to help us parse through this latest development related to the Ukraine war is Max Blumenthal, editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone. Welcome, Max. Good to see you, Brianna. How are you really, doing, Robbie? <laughs> I really appreciate your commentary uh, throughout this last year plus of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Help us make sense of what's going on. First, let's talk about um, these battlefield developments. What should we know or understand about the weaponry? And perhaps some uh, you can elaborate on what context we should have learned also from the leaks of last week or the week before and whether or not they have, sh have changed the dynamics on the battlefield at all. Well, I'm more of an American typer than an American sniper, so I'm not really a military expert, but it's my understanding that the battle raging between Ukraine's military and Russian forces in the East, specifically around Bakhmut, is really a stalemate that's being waged with mines laid out across defensive fortifications in which tanks aren't really effective and play mainly a symbolic value. That includes the uh, American M1A1 Abrams tanks that never really arrived or the German Leopard tanks. doesn't look like they're going to be uh, much of a battlefield factor. Uh, and you have right now all of this pressure on the Ukrainian military to wage a counteroffensive. But as we've seen from these leaked Pentagon documents, the U.S. and the Pentagon Defense Intelligence Agency is acknowledging that there aren't very good prospects for their counteroffensive. Zelensky's begging for weapons. The cemeteries are filling up across Ukraine. There aren't enough skilled officers and veteran fighters. Uh, pressure is being put on men across Ukraine to enlist. They're being forcibly conscripted. This is a story the U.S. media is covering up. And now Politico is even reporting, citing U.S. officials, who would I, I would assume people in the Biden administration, saying that the prospects are bleak for some dramatic counteroffensive that will extend the war. So what happens then? The European countries that have been suffering through this energy crisis are going to start putting pressure on Ukraine to negotiate and the endless war that the militarists about around Biden have fantasized about, which is costing U.S. taxpayers $61,000 a day, sorry, a minute, a minute mm. for military aid that's over $35 billion of military aid so far, will eventually have to come to an ignominious end. Right. And Given that it is so clear that that's where things are headed, why on earth won't the Biden administration um, prepare for that eventuality, that, that unavoidable eventuality, and make or push or support some kind of ceasefire or peace deal now? Wouldn't that just be the obvious thing to do if we're, we're just heading to the precipice of disaster anyway? Yeah, it really, to the average American taxpayer, makes no sense. And that's why we're seeing so much outrage and resonance of this issue within the Democratic Party with RFK Jr.'s candidacy. And though I, I have to chalk it up to ideology, to fanaticism among the people around Biden, from Victoria Newland at the State Department and Tony Blinken, who actually wrote his uh, 
graduate thesis on the destruction of the Russian Siberian pipeline, which kind of set the stage for the Nord Stream pipeline. And then you have Jake Sullivan at the NSC. I mean, these are real hawkish ideologues. Susan Rice, I mean, she was one of the architects of the Libyan regime change operation that destabilized a large part of North Africa. She was his domestic policy advisor. Uh, they're not looking at the reality on the ground. And then you have NATO itself. For NATO, it would be humiliating to have to make territorial concessions to Russia when they were pushing right up against Russia's frontiers. And then you have all of the Beltway bandits in Washington who are profiteering off this war. I mean, the people who I see in Washington in affluent neighborhoods with Ukrainian flags over their townhomes, they have literal skin, well, not literal skin, but they have figurative skin in the game here. They're, they're working for Lockheed Martin, or they're in the administration, or they're at the Pentagon. So there are those forces that are acting against the will of the average American taxpayer right now. I mean, what do you make of the statement um, that was made at the UN about the use of the IMF um, as a kind of uh, arm of imperialism to ex exert Western control over various other countries? Can you unpack that, that argument for us here? Yeah, no, that's a really important point. If you remember Joe Biden's first trip to Kiev in February 2015, he actually said, I directed the IMF to give loans to this new government. This was a coup government that had come in after toppling a democratically elected leader. It was the nationalist government that was going to eventually be used as a proxy to make war against Russia. And the IMF was Biden's personal tool, as he said, to prop up this regime. And, you know, flash forward to today, where the U.S. government is going around the world seizing the bank accounts of wealthy Russians in violation of law and due process simply because they're Russian. And as Lavrov said, this violates the principle of globalization. So what they're doing, I mean, what just happened at the U.N., the Russian journalists were stripped of their visas by the host country in violation of U.S. rules. They were not allowed to enter. So the U.S. is creating a new iron curtain here. And what Lavrov is saying is that with the end of globalization, we are going to see a new process where all the countries that have been left out of this process will get together, specifically Russia and China, and begin to form a new and very powerful bloc, which will lead to the end of unipolar U.S. hegemony and the end of dollar dominance over the global economy. That's already happening at a rapid rate right before our eyes. I mean, it does seem like that's happening, that the writing is on the wall. We're seeing uh, many member countries in the global south expressing their frustration with being coerced to support the war in Ukraine. You see these statements from, you know, people who are well admired, especially in the left of the United States, like Lula in Brazil, making similar kinds of statements. And yet, the United States' posture on this seems to be to double down. What do you think their end game is? There is no end game. I mean, the U.S. can only continue to escalate unless um, sane, rational forces take the reins of power. I mean, we're hearing from militaristic members of Congress and in the think tank sector that the reason the U.S. needs to fight Russia over there in Ukraine is to prevent China from fighting Taiwan. In other words, we're, they're, they're going to pivot next to a conflict with Taiwan. And I think that's, that's the next phase here. And if you look at the war games, I mean, the exercises that uh, CSIS, this think tank in D.C., ran around a U.S.-China conflict, tens of thousands of U.S. service members died. Uh, several uh, aircraft carriers and major battle groups were sunk. This would cause an existential crisis for the U.S. from which it would never recover. And yet they're 
preparing for it. It's an incredibly dangerous scenario. And meanwhile, the rest of the world, including Saudi Arabia, uh, which just a few years ago had its leadership dance with the U.S. president with swords, is moving on. Saudi Arabia selling oil to China and Yuan. Saudi Arabia is engaged in a peace process with Iran, completely shattering the whole U.S. strategic, uh, the, the, the entire U.S. strategy for dominating the Middle East. And that peace accord was brokered by China. Hmm. Max, so much. thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Robbie. In a new report, The Lever News details how Fox News' parent company, Fox Corporation, is aiming to write off the behemoth $787 million agreed to pay Dominion Voting Systems. Dominion sued Fox in March of 2021 for repeatedly making false claims that the 2020 election was rigged. The massive settlement might have freed Fox from the embarrassment of a very public trial. The tax code might just rescue them from the financial punishment. Here to discuss how one line in the tax code could help Fox News after all is the levers Julia Rock. Julia, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me on today. So, Julia, this is a scoop of sorts by the lever. What's going on here? Is Fox going to be able to substantially avoid uh, paying this enormous nearly $800 million judgment because of the tax code? I mean, to answer the big question, uh, yes, Fox gets to write off this uh, massive deduction, uh, th this massive settlement as a tax deduction. And, you know, $787 million, sometimes it's hard to know what a number like that uh, means for a company like Fox. But that's actually a huge portion of, of their 2022 profits, which, which we can imagine um, will be substantially similar this year, although maybe the loss of Tucker uh, calls that into question. But mm. yes, because of a line in the tax code that allows companies to write off ordinary and necessary business expenses, which the IRS has long interpreted to include settlements like this one, uh, Fox can write it off. And you know, for for those of us like myself who do not enjoy paying taxes and are thus not as informed as we should be on you know what what this all means, by by writing it off, that means they're essentially not going to pay taxes on this amount of money, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 probably the best way to think about it is you know Fox is a company that's that's headquartered in New York, so they're paying uh, federal and state income taxes which are somewhere between a quarter and third of their income. And so if you can write off, you know, $787 million, that could amount to tax savings of more than $200 million. And to be clear, th this is something that, right, as you said, the IRS has said, yes, this, this kind of thing can be written off. This is not specific to Fox. They're not getting, like, real creative in a way that no one else has ever thought of. This is just, this is actually how the IRS has interpreted this issue. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, a, a lot of uh, sort of tax geniuses have been out on Twitter saying, well, of course they can write off this settlement. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's true. Of course they can write it off. I think, you know, a some of the logic for not um, changing the policy is that you sometimes have companies, you know, facing really small, petty lawsuits and, and they're going to settle them. This $787 million for defamation you know, is is a huge settlement. And of course, there were costs um, to Fox's lies about the election that go far beyond the damages to Dominion. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like not that, you know, Fox News is trying to do anything 
under the table or, you know, that is inappropriate here, but it does call into question why it is that it seems over and over again the tax code advantages corporations, the affluent in ways that working people don't seem to be getting these kinds of tax breaks, whether or not we're talking about um, the difference between how much you're able to write off in interest payments on your million dollar house versus your $30,000 loan payment. And one, you can write off on the entire interest up to now, I think it's $750,000 house. You can only write up, up off up to $2,000 worth of interest for student loans. Those kind of differences seem to really underscore the fact that the tax code seems to have been written with the rich in mind as opposed to ordinary Americans. Absolutely. Something something doesn't sit right about it. And it's like even in the moment, you know, when a company is maybe finally having to pay some cost for engaging in massively harmful activity, like there's still a catch uh, where where um, there's some way they can, you know, benefit from it. That's, yeah, just, you know, business as usual. Yeah, I mean, the whole system, I, I, I do recall, you know, from going through my taxes every year, like what you can write off. I work with someone who's more of an expert, my brother-in-law, actually, and he's like, oh, well, you could write off this, but this, but not this, and it seems... So Totally confusing and also uh, an advantage, really, to people who like have the time and the resources mm -hmm. to go through it very systematically versus everyday, ordinary working people who do not have that extra time or like people who have kids and their kids take up their time. It, it just seems total, so complicated and so designed um, and not to help people actually just pay you know, what they owe and then move on. And I think it's actually revealing that, you know, uh, again, sort of tax experts were like, yep, of course, you know, no problem, they'll write it off. And yet the, the sort of general reaction to this piece of information has been, this is appalling. It's like, it, there's some world in which this is a completely normal, unremarkable fact. And then there's some other world, which is most of the world where um, it, you know, it seems like the American taxpayer is getting ripped off at the expense of Fox. I mean, this reminds me of how galling it was to people when they realized that uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, we're talking the richest people in the world here, uh, managed to pay zero dollars in federal income. I think it was back in 2007, and that was largely because he was able to offset the 46 million in income with reported losses from investments and deductions and debts and other expenses. So again, it really does feel like this is a code. Uh, for the elites and not the code for working people who get very little, little in the way of these tax breaks. To Robbie's point, this is my first year as a kind of a solo entrepreneur, for first full year, and my my accountant was saying, well, can you write some stuff off? And I was like, I don't think so. My business expenses are like, I buy clothes to wear on the air, right. and he says, clothes don't count. Yeah, because clothes don't count, <laughs> laptop doesn't count. That's all I bought is a laptop if you had a meeting clothes. with someone and you talked business, uh -huh. that could be written off. So I can go to a fancy dinner with my podcast yeah. guest, but I can't buy a new mock neck turtleneck to wear while I'm interviewing I them. I think so. I, this is not, I'm not giving tax advice on the air <laughs> for legal reasons, but I think that is how it works, Yeah, which yeah. makes no sense. So Julia, in your, your perception is that there has been a public outcry over this. Do you think there's, there's any kind of po political momentum to try to do anything about it? There's been a lot of conservative interest in um, uh, an IRS agent hiring uh, by the Biden administration. You know, do, do you imagine this developing in any way that's kind of like politically productive here? I mean, I, I, I hope so. Uh, there, there have been some, you know, progressive Congress people saying they're they're going to introduce legislation to do something about that. This, and I only roll my eyes because mm -hmm. there's no way something like that gets to this Congress. But you know, the last last big scandal about um, 
uh, write-offs like this was, uh, you know, before even before the major drug companies settled with state and local governments over um, pushing opioids onto their communities, they, onto communities they were telling uh, investors, we're, we're going to be able to write off, I think it was like more than $4 billion in taxes. Hmm. Um, and and Congress did move to sort of narrow a little bit um, um, write-offs in situations where companies were paying settlements to governments. So maybe there's going to be something here. Again, it's hard to imagine legislation going anywhere, but there has um, you know, been some responses from progressive lawmakers saying this is no good. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Julia Roth, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Minnesota police officer Kim Potter has been released from prison after serving time for the fatal shooting of Dante Wright, a 20-year-old unarmed black man during a 2021 traffic stop near Minneapolis. Wright was pulled over for having expired tags and for a hanging air freshener. Potter says she mistook her gun for a taser and served 16 months of a two-year sentence in the fatal shooting. The city of Brooklyn Center agreed to pay $3.25 million in a settlement to the family of Duante Wright in June of 2022. The Wright family said the payment still has not been distributed due to other unrelated legal disputes, but they are hopeful to receive payment in the next 90 days. So uh, there was a lot going on yeah. in this very unfortunate incident. So he was pulled over. Um, they then ran his information and there was uh, th there were good reasons to continue with the engagement because he had an outstanding arrest warrant. He had a protective order against him from an unnamed woman. Um, he did not have a driver's license or a proof of insurance card. Uh, the his his outstanding warrant was for failing to appear in court relating to a a weapons uh, carrying a weapon without a permit. So they proceeded to arrest him with cause. Then, uh, you know, there was some, a little bit of a struggle, and Potter um, says she was reaching for her taser, but she pulled her gun out and said and shot him. Then he actually, then there was a car crash because he was still in control of the car, and it, he died. It was very bad. Her reaction, if you watch the video, does very much support the contention that she did not mean to shoot him, that she meant to use the taser. She, in fact, immediately reacts, oh my God, I shot him what have I done kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about this. I, I think, look, obviously this woman should not work as a police officer ever again. Um, what she did was, was very wrong. Um, she, has, she served 14 months of a two-year sentence. I, I think I understand the conviction. You know, it's a, it's a, it was a, it, she killed him wrongly and she didn't intend to. I would not say this is a case where this woman like needs to spend the rest of her life or even a very, very long period in prison. If you think the purpose of prison is, you know, to keep us safe, as long as she does not work as a she should not work as a police officer again, she should not carry a gun again, um, and, and then the public will be safe, is my thinking here. Yeah, look, my inclination is not to have more incarceration and more right. people spending more time in prison, but it is frustrating, and people will note this, that over and over again, certain kinds of people don't have that same grace applied to them when they are sentenced to long sentences because they are perceived to be a threat whether or not they are and perceived to be perhaps more able to tolerate prison condi conditions than perhaps a young, dare I say, white woman. 
And that even worse than that, there are certain kinds of people that don't even get the benefit of the criminal justice system point blank period because they end up getting killed extrajudicially like Duante Wright was in this scenario. So I do think there are things to talk about here, why it is that a taser and a gun can be confused, whether or not police in the course of these kind of traffic stops should be armed with guns in the first place. I know that that seems like a remarkable statement, but in most countries in the world, with lower crime rates than ours, their police officers aren't armed in the least, and yet they manage to keep the peace. Part of this is an escalation. There's like a literal arms race. If more Americans have guns, do more cops need to have guns? And we're inevitably going to end up in situations like this where innocent people are murdered and, murder and, and people who did not intend to murder become murderers because we have poorly designed systems and tools that are not well suited for the kinds mm -hmm. of jobs that they are being tasked with. And you know, I don't know what to do with that. But with that, but it, this is a, just a terrible situation all the way around. The video of the incident is galling. The her emotional response afterward is horrible. You know, I you know you you can you can hear her, the grief and the regret and the shock and the pain. She says, "I'm going to jail. I can't believe I'm going to jail." I mean, some of I think her sadness is obviously having killed someone. Some of it I think is thinking about what that means for her own future, but. The, what we don't get to hear from, the person who doesn't get to speak, is the deceased, who's lying, dying, bleeding out in a car down the street, and who'll never get to live the rest of his life, a 20-year-old kid. And I don't want to, I don't want the vocalization from the woman who killed him, because she was able to make those vocalizations, to kind of take up disproportionate space that should belong to someone who was murdered because of, I think, bad, bad policy, bad public policy. Yeah. I, being in law enforcement should be considered a responsibility. Yeah. And you work for the American citizens, the taxpayers, and it is an awesome responsibility. And if you show you are not, you are not cut out for it, as this person did, then you are not cut out for it. Um, we, we have covered, I, I recall, at least a few other cases of the so-called the, the kind of wrongful taser. Uh, there was a fame, there was a case, I remember from college. Do you remember the, I can't remember the name of the individual involved, but there was someone, it was a pretty big case, and the police officer shot him when he, the police officer said he meant to taser him. Mm. So this has, this is not the first time I've seen this. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that it happens all that much, but if there's, if there's a easy fix to making sure that, you know, where the taser is and where the gun is, it's, Obvious, so that police officers don't. Because look, it's it's a it's a tense situation, and you know you or I might react very poorly in a tense situation. But they're supposed to have the training and and the and the ability to handle the situation without you know escalating things. To I mean, she like she she didn't intend to kill him. She, right. It's clear she didn't well, mean to do that. It's, it's worth noting that we covered this back in January that there was the cousin of the Black Lives Matter um, organizer, Keenan Darnell who died from the taser blast. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even... Well, I, I, he died after being blasted with the taser. It's I don't know that it was definitively yeah, apparently, that, that was the cause of the... Apparently, 500 people have died from police use of tasers nationwide uh, in the last 10 years or so. And, you know, that's, you might say, a relatively small number over a 10-year period, but it does speak to the fact that even wielding that sort of a tool, weapon, mm -hmm. is not without risks and shouldn't be done 
willy-nilly. I mean, when, when you think about Eating instances, people with billy clubs is a scary, significant risk as well. I mean, there's, well, you, yeah, no matter you should, what you, kind of weapon. You the, shouldn't beat people with billy clubs either using disproportionate force. I think that the story in so many I'm of these cases. I'm saying the disproportionate force rather than the implemented. In so many of these cases, the existence of certain kinds of tools, I think, is dictating police behavior. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they didn't have them, you can imagine different kinds of outcomes. So, for instance, part of the Part of the frustration, part of what was so tragic around the um, uh, Tamir Rice shooting, where Tamir Rice was a child in a playground playing with a toy gun, the police drove up and within seconds right. had shot him dead. I think it was like two seconds since they were on the scene. And some of the criticism was that the car had driven up in proximity to the child, at which point they could then claim, I was close to someone with a gun, I was in danger, I had to shoot him. And a world where the police either didn't have guns or were behaving as though they didn't have guns, and you thought you were driving up on somebody who was armed, you would maybe keep your distance, park your car and come out on the side of your car using your car as a barrier and start a conversation with the person, drop your weapon, what's going on here? At which point you can imagine the 12-year-old says, hi, I'm a 12-year-old and this is a toy gun, and that 12-year-old would be an adult today living a productive life. Um, so I, I do think that we should have a conversation about how the existence of these tools and are, are, are adding to the police perception of them being um, invincible or empowered in ways that actually escalate situations and create more danger for themselves and then in turn for the suspect um, because they they know that they have like the gun as the last resort or the taser right. even as the last well, the, resort. The taser is intended to stun yeah. the person. If you're firing a gun, you're trying to kill the person. There, there's no, there's no, that's just from the movies, the shoot him in the leg, shoot him in the arm, that doesn't exist. If there's no train, if police are no one other than like, you know, superheroes or something, secret agents can shoot, can reliably shoot someone without d doing them serious harm. So if you're shooting, you are shooting to kill. That's the training, that's the, even Joe Biden said that once on about, some national gun incident in a in a speech a few years ago, and he was like, "Yeah, why don't they? Why don't they just try to shoot him yeah, in the leg? They was, don't do that. Gone. They can't do that." That they, was just in January too. Wow, what a long year. <laughs> was this January? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. an idiotic comment. It it doesn't correspond to reality at all. If if they're if they're firing their gun, they are trying to kill the person. Yeah. Um, and when, then once they're neutralized, maybe that you can provide. First aid, you can get the ambulance services, maybe the person survives, but if they're firing, they're they're firing to, to neutralize, to Oh, he said person. it multiple times. Yeah. Somebody's gotta gotta <laughs> have Biden him take that, drop that talking as point. Well. It is not it's wrong. Yeah. accurate. It is very wrong. More rising right after this. Dr. Anthony Fauci is again hitting out against those who say he mishandled the COVID-19 pandemic response. When asked to answer to his critics by the New York Times, the former NIH head said, quote, when people say Fauci shut down the economy, it wasn't Fauci. The CDC was the organization that made those recommendations. I happen to be perceived as the personification of the recommendations, but show me a school that I shut down and show me a factory that I shut down. Never, I never did. I gave a public health recommendation that echoed the CDC's recommendation, and people made a decision based on that. But I never criticized the people who had to make the decisions one way or the other. This was a fascinating interview, not just on this subject, but I guess we should, should start here. There's a lot of interesting things right. he said, and the interviewer— um, David Wallace-Wells. David Wallace-Wells did a great Wells, job. Did a great job. Uh, 
politely and articulately putting forth a lot of criticisms that we've had and others have had of Fauci. Yeah, on the schools thing, look, I think what Fauci is saying is is not it's not incorrect. Mm -hmm. It is true that he gave guidance. He is not a legislator. He's not a governor. He's not a mayor. He's not um, a school supervisor. The actual shutdowns uh, were done by people on his recommendation and on CDC recommendations. And he did, at, at least I think in the tr at beginning with Trump, he was a little clear that he's like, well, I'm giving, I'm giving the public health recommendation. And if you want to hear the economic recommendation and the, and the learning recommendation and everything else. But even the public else, health recommendation, I mean, look, it, it came to totally dominate all other. But, but I'm saying even the public health recommendation isn't, wouldn't necessarily dictate or, or make the case for shutting down schools as long as they were shut down. Because here's the thing. Look, there was a point in time where we didn't know as much about the course of the disease. And we didn't have vaccines. And there were there were things that changed along the way. So I'm not trying to fault people for coming yeah. to conclusions made in relative ignorance. However, at a certain point, it was clear that there was relatively low risk for young people, that there was a protective value of having had COVID already. Um, and the recommendations to keep schools closed were, were based on public health recommendations that I think actually were not accurate. And it doesn't seem right. like he's taking responsibility for that aspect schools of it. Schools were closed when, at a for weeks at a time period where most other things were not closed. Yeah. Even though the threat to children was lower. Was lower. And that goes into another thing. They're, they have an exchange here on masks that is very fascinating, yeah. where, uh, where David Wallace Wells posits that, look, he, that he thinks masks do work, but uh, unless you're wearing them so rigorously to a degree that almost no one is capable of doing. Well, I wouldn't say capable, but nobody has been even encouraged to do. Um, There's been no public mask fittings. There's been, there's been no real advice about high quality masks. High quality masks have not been distributed to the public. All of those things, but but sure. Um, it, it's only making a 10% difference otherwise. That well, is contrary to what was said through most of the pandemic when it was wear a mask, any mask, you don't have to be too particular about it. Now We now know that was doing almost nothing. Well, I, we should... We should um, uh, be specific about what was, was actually said there. Um, the, so what was said was that the mask absolutely work if the appropriate mask was worn properly here, here. To be clear, I'm not someone, he says, who doesn't think masks work. I think the science and the data show that they do work, but that they aren't perfect, and that at the population level, the effect can be somewhat small. In what was probably our best study from Bangladesh, in places where mask use tripled, positive tests were reduced by less than 10%. That's Wallace Wells saying that. Yeah. yeah. And then Fauci says, it's a good point in general. I disagree with your premises, premise a bit. From a broad public health standpoint, at the population level, masks work at the margins, maybe 10%. For an individual who religiously wears a mask, a well-fitted KN95 or N95, it's not at the margin. It really does work. Yeah, that's, that's what he's saying. And that's, I, I don't understand why that keeps being thrown out there as a gotcha. People who. Because that's not support, what they said throughout most of the pandemic. No, no, no. But that's not masks. What do you don't mean? Work. No, no, no. That's what they That's not what they said. Correct. I'm not disagreeing okay. with that. But what I'm saying is different. And what mask advocates have been saying forever is different, which is that high quality masks work. And studies that show that low quality masks don't work keep getting bandied about as this argument that masks don't work. No, your crap mask that we've been telling you not to wear this whole time doesn't work. Who's and it's, the we? You, Brianna Joy Gray? It's not, it's not Dr. Fauci. No, that's, I'm, 
I'm agreeing with that okay. point, that the health authorities were negligent in not telling people the truth about masks. That low-quality masks, those silly bandanas they had us tying around our ears with scrunchies in the early days, were not doing much of anything at all, and that high-quality masks do work. What I'm objecting to is the conflation of the idea that low-quality masks don't do much with the idea that high-quality masks doesn't work. Or as you kind of phrased it a second ago, that it is kind of impossible, or I forget what word you use, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but that it is it is, it is unlikely that we can ever reach the ma mask um, uh, uh, usage rates or the, the type of the, the mask application that would actually have tangible Well, the reason I results. say that is it, it goes into what they discuss elsewhere in this interview, which, again, is great. Everyone should go read it, which is that, if, and Fauci concedes here that, because he starts out by saying the American response was so bad, so many people died, and then David Wallace-Wells says, but look, like, there wasn't actually that much difference in, you know, some of the island nations, nations of, of, uh, of East Asia did better for a while, but a lot of our peer European countries ended up having outcomes that aren't all that different. They didn't use policies that, 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 that were that different. They didn't mask themselves so, again, so religiously that they substantially reduced um, their deaths. Maybe they had fewer deaths because they have healthier populations seems to be the main difference uh, than America does. But and then Fauci says, you know, you're right. Honestly, it, it, it was all it was pretty bad all the way around. And yeah, he, he attributes that. that to the virus. And then that makes me think, well, why are we all saying we could have just done everything better? And he seems to then concede when pushed on this that, you know, it was a really bad virus and we were always going to have a bad time of it. Yeah, I mean, he says that we, first Fauci says, well, we were the, one of the worst, and Wallace Wells actually corrects them, we're the 40th worst, which is maybe we would want to be ranked better right. as a country with as many resources as we have. But honestly, the differences between the people at that level are, the, the country's outcomes are very marginal. Right. Um, I, I was really interested in this pushback that David Wallace Wells uh, gave to Fauci, specifically about the lab leak phenomenon. Um, Wells asks him, he basically says, I would have trouble sleeping at night if there was even like a small chance that the this pandemic was the result of the EcoHealth grant and the, the work that was done at this Wuhan lab. He says, I think that might weigh on me a bit, even if I were absolutely sure I had done everything I had done with the best intentions. Fauci seems to bristle a little at this idea that he shouldn't be sleeping well at night, and he responds, now you're saying things that are a little bit troublesome to me, that I need to go to bed tonight worrying that NIH-funded research was responsible for pandemic origins. Wallace Wells says, I'm not saying you need to do anything. I'm putting myself in your shoes and telling you what I think it would mean to me. And Fauci replies, well, I sleep fine. I sleep fine. Yes, and they get into a little bit of this argument about gain-of-function research, where again, and this is not the first time now I've heard Fauci do this, which makes me suspect if this is going to ultimately end up to be the case, um, saying that, well, look, you're, if, if, this, if, if the pandemic's origin was researchers went to a bat cave, collected a bat sample, and then that bat bit the researcher, mm -hmm. and then that, that caused COVID, the pandemic, he's saying, well, that's still a natural spillover event. That's animal to human. Mm -hmm. That's not because of something you did in a lab. But uh, that's actually, that's, okay, fine, call it whatever you want. But that is what we're objecting to. They're going into caves to look for bats mm -hmm. because they're doing experiments mm -hmm. on them in labs. So that is still a lab leak and still something that, that affects our, even if it doesn't specifically have to do with the manipulation or the project that we set out to do, we, these encounters 
do between people and like bats in caves are not naturally occurring events, except in the sense that like everything humans do is natural because we're part of nature and we manipulate our environments. But they're not things that are happening unless you're specifically sending people in those environments to do the research. I mean, sure. And that is what we're arguing about. And it, yeah. Not technically whether, yes, it, it came from an animal, even if we had not manipulated but had intended to manipulate it in some sense, that's like a very academic difference to me. Well, to Fauci's point here is that he says if all gain of function stops, you'll have no vaccines for flu. He says, he basically says, it's not that it's not a concern, but that you have to have a totally transparent process that involves scientific input and community input and informed community input. And I, I am reluctant to say people shouldn't collect animal samples ever because sometimes a flu can, can have a crossover event. I think that is wild. I mean, that would so many scientific innovations have come from studying plants in nature. Should no one go into the Amazon and find new, you know, particular potential cures for diseases in plants and animal samples because someone might get bitten somewhere and Not cause the a flu? Not the spreading disease is worse. <laughs> well, there's no way to know that. We wouldn't have any number of, 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 of medications if we had never taken the bark off the tree to see if aspirin, you know, how to make aspirin. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it gets a little absurd. Well, but okay, I think the initial point that Fauci is making here, that you have to be, be safe and protected, the part of the, the real scandal here, and this, is, this really also frustrates me, there's this jump from there could be lab leak to we got to shut down all of the science. Well, part of the critique here and the critique that has been made long before this pandemic happened is that the people who were sent into those caves weren't given protection, protective gear. People who are especially lower down on the science food chain here aren't being protected by the institutions that are relying on them to collect initial samples. Yeah, we read from a, a transcript of, of the person doing that role uh, on the show a few weeks ago, and he was saying that, he, yeah, he didn't have gloves. It's he ridiculous. Have... Like, that's that's the first line of defense. Why why was this research right. being done in a lab that wasn't up to the standard of, of um, barriers and protections? There are different kinds of labs for different kind of danger levels of research, and what we found out is that this kind of research was being done in a lab where lab leaks mm -hmm. were common. Leaks from this kind of facility are relatively common. Why not put it in a higher security lab? And so it's not that I don't think that potentially we might come to the conclusion that given the risk, the rewards aren't worth it. But we are. it seems like we're so far from there. And, and, and Fauci's saying, well, it has to be a safe and transparent process, knowing that it's anything but a safe and transparent process kind of elides the question. Yeah. There was also a good discussion in there about the herd immunity threshold, where Fauci does sort of admit some real errors in his thinking there and how he messaged how likely breakthrough infections were going to be. I mean, there's a part where David uh, Wallace-Wells just calls him out and says, so much of what you know you said and the public health consensus said is just not accurate. 95% of all people on Earth have had COVID, and 70% of people have had a vaccine or multiple shots, and there's no herd immunity. It's not gone. It, that doesn't happen. That doesn't work. And we don't have herd immunity for the cold either, uh, for, for uh, the flu, rather. It, it reoccurs every year, so shouldn't you have anticipated that there would not be this durable protection? And well, what do you say to uh, Fauci that? is kind of like, yeah, I was wrong. I mean, I, I think, well, I know they're different the, viruses, the, the but. herd immunity point, they always said that it had to be a very high vaccination rate. Now, I still think it probably wouldn't have worked mm -hmm. because of breakthrough inf infections, which we now just call infections because <laughs> there's right. no protection against actually right. getting infected. Right. But you know, that, my recollection was that they were always like, well, some 90-odd percent of the population had to be vaccinated. No, for he that said it work. at, I think he said it at 80 percent. 
I think that they kept changing it. I think right. that, that was part of the. But issue. we all know at, at no level of vaccination would we have. I, I think I think that's right. It, it doesn't yeah, stop you from getting right. it a few weeks later. Yeah. Well, this is a fascinating report. Uh, people should read it in full. David Wallace Wells, I think, put some really important questions to Fauci. We'll have more rising for you after this. This, this narrative that there's only one way to deal with this and that this way is actually going to stop it. Well, if it is going to stop it, why do you care who gets it? You should just get it. Because if you get it, that means that no one else is going to You're never going to get it. Everybody who gets the shot is never going to get it. That was the narrative. That was a lie from the beginning. And now we're realizing that it was a lie. Everybody realizes it was a lie now. Like, but, we were, I was talking to someone last night that got, had COVID really bad after being vaccinated. Like, really bad. Two weeks wrecked. So I have a I have a a great friend, uh, and his daughter, college, gets the shot. She ends up in emergency room, and she's got blood clots on her liver, and. They're all like, you know, what do you think of it? Well, you know, she she rose a lot on the row team, and like, are you are you really, you really gonna believe that's what it was? Well, people do anything to not blame it on the vaccine. Like when there's an injury, like people want to find all sorts of other reasons. That was Joe Rogan uh, making some comments about vaccine injuries, which come as new NBC News reporting details the allegedly thousands of Americans who say that they have symptoms of life-altering tinnitus ringing in the ears after they took the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, as of Sunday, at least 16,000 people had filed complaints with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that they developed tinnitus or ringing in their ears after receiving a vaccine. The CDC conducted internal reviews of the reports. They did not find any data specifically suggesting a link between COVID-19 vaccines and tinnitus, according to an agency spokesperson. Mm. Despite the CDC's findings, researchers like Xiaowen Bao, an associate professor at the physiology department of the College of Medicine at the University of Arizona, Tucson, are beginning to dive deeper into the possible link, according to the NBC News report. Bao, who has been studying tinnitus for over a decade, was convinced to look into the issue after getting messages on Facebook. After surveying roughly 400 cases from the online group, along with ringing in their ears, uh, participants reported a range of other symptoms, including headaches, dizziness, vertigo, ear pain, anxiety, and depression. Significantly more people first developed tinnitus after the first dose of the vaccine compared with a second. So far, Bao believes that ongoing inflammation, especially in the brain or spinal cord, may be to blame. So this is all quite preliminary. Um, the CDC looked into this and didn't find the evidence that you would might like to see, but they also didn't release the full report. They have done that with the myocarditis claim, so you can judge for yourself. Not able to do so in this case. Um, I, I was interested and frankly kind of heartened that NBC News, uh, a very textbook mainstream outlet, um, is taking this concern very seriously, wrote this pretty good news article 
about it. You know, want to apply a lot of caution here because uh, tinnitus, again, ringing in the ears, uh, is something that actually a lot of Americans suffer Apparently from. Apparently, 25% of Americans right. suffer from it, and there's this question. To some degree as, of it. It might, might not be severe tinnitus. Sure, sure. And these people are registering... Um, severe symptoms yes. uh, that apparently manifest after their first shot. Including that doctor looking into it. Right. Yeah. Right. So it is, it's worth noting that a lot of people are going to experience these symptoms anyway, and that it might be, um, you have these preconditions for tinnitus that are perhaps exacerbated by the vaccine. Obviously, we don't know. People are looking into it. Um, but it is worth noting that one, the CDC hasn't found a link yet, although, as you've pointed out, they haven't released the review the way they have in the context of myocarditis and other side effects. That 16,000 complainants, which is about what the number we have here, equals about one in every 15,000 vaccinated Americans. So, again, the odds are relatively low still. Mm -hmm. And, again, 25% of people are going to But that's just the number of people, you know, who actually went ahead and reported to the CDC, I'm having bad tinnitus and I got vaccinated. there, (laughs) There are probably a lot more people out there who have tinnitus or got tinnitus, maybe it was after a vaccine, and haven't reported it, so we can't. Sure. And maybe they were going to get tinnitus anyway. Maybe they already had it. Might have nothing to do with the vaccine. That's the, you know, the difficulty in looking at some of these things, including, like, the blood clot issue that Joe Rogan's guest was talking about there. Um, you know, and that's a that's a more unlikely complication, especially for a very young person who is an athlete, a rower, et cetera. Um, you know, that's why this whole idea of... of, of requiring and forcing vaccines on people, as, again, many colleges have, seems so wrongheaded to me uh, when, you know, we don't—look, uh, we, we don't have—I want to be careful how I say this. I, I don't think there's a lot of really strong evidence of serious risk and serious dangers associated with the vaccines. But we also know that a lot of the things that were said by experts about the necessity of being vaccinated to keep yourself safe from from just from infection from COVID even did not pan out. And if we're looking at age groups where the where the COVID risk mm-hmm. is very low, and maybe the vaccine risk also very 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 low, but how can you say, as like an expert or a policymaker, that I'm taking that choice away from you? How could that be? That has to be to the individual to decide in consultation with their with their doctor. Maybe maybe they have some precondition that makes them more at risk of blood clots or or yeah. or even tinnitus. Uh, yeah. Theoretically, they might make a different vaccine decision than someone else. That should absolutely be their right. It's ludicrous. Yeah, as the as the benefit goes down when right. the risk reward. Right. Calculation. And then the as social the re- benefit going down to almost nothing. Yeah. As the, as, the rewar- as the reward goes down, you don't actually have to prove that the risks are especially high to have a good argument against not yeah. pursuing a vaccine or at least not requiring the vaccines. So that's that's kind of the world we are in now when, where we've shifted dramatically from what we had hoped the vaccines would offer in terms of protection from the virus in the early days, and especially now that people have immunity from having gotten the vac- uh, gotten COVID, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, we're in, a different, we're in a different world. I think what was so remarkable about this piece in particular was simply the fact that it was being covered a story like this about vaccine consequences, that vaccine side effects is being covered in a mainstream institution. As many people pointed out online, they, one, were willing to credit the story simply because it appeared in NBC. Um, and two, the fact that it did appear at NBC, given there's been so much pushback against the idea of like fomenting vaccine hesitancy in the mainstream press, that it, they, they were like, well, this must really be a story. This must be really credible, because otherwise right. this type of institution 
wouldn't carry the story. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily fair. We've seen an interesting kind of opening up of discourse spaces about COVID in the last few months, whether it is the lab leak theory now being kind of a more mainstream valid theory now that it has gotten the okay from various um, uh, government agencies, that it's more likely to have come from lab leak than a zoonotic origin. Um, and now this open conversation about not COVID side effects, but COVID vaccine side effects. I mean, what should, should we read anything at all into what appears to be a shift in the discourse? I mean, I'm, I'm applauding this shift in the discourse, but it's just what should have been all along. And some people are upset. Yeah. Are, are upset that there needs to be some apology. Some people are saying, I've been talking about this for a long time when I was dismissed as a crank. And still, we don't know that this is And maybe is we'd be less, as a society, maybe we'd be less polarized and radicalized. Maybe, um, maybe people would be less... Certain people would be uh, less inclined to just disregard everything they hear from health officials because it was just so one-sided for so long. Yet, right, the, the concerns about spreading vaccine-related misinformation, I mean, uh, content moderation decisions were made on that basis on right. social media platforms. We've seen that over and over again, that Facebook, for instance, essentially outsourced its content moderation to the CDC itself, and, uh, and the CDC was took the position that basically any claim you would make that would be negative about vaccines, even vaccines for children, is something that could cause hesitance and is not something that should be allowed. It was harmful on that basis. And that was just such a wrong way to try to control the access to information that people have. It yeah. is not a, I, that's not a healthy way of looking no. at this entire debate. It was not instructive for public debate and it's gotten to us to where we are now. It's so I, I was yeah. glad to see NBC uh, cover this like this. I, I would have wanted to see coverage on all the other COVID-related issues in, yeah, well, in the look, past. If, if the and door is open, the, new... the door is open. It is also interesting timing, it seems to me, given that RFK has this new candidacy that mm -hmm. is surging in some ways and that the main uh, attack that the mainstream political press seems to be making at him is the idea that he is a vaccine skeptic talking about some of his past statements linking vaccines to autism in a way that the medical community has not linked vaccines and autism. And I think more substantively for the current moment, being very skeptical of a lot of COVID era policies, which have not necessarily stood the test of time. So if he is surging at the same time that the broader public is a lot more open to discussions about vaccine risk, vaccine, vaccine skepticism and things like that, it could be rather auspicious timing for that particular candidacy. Right. And if if uh, some in the mainstream are worried or wondering, why why are people listening to RFK Jr.? Remember that why. Joe Biden said that if you get the vaccine, you're not going to get COVID. And that turned out not to be true. Yeah. Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna and I will be back right here to bring you all the biggest news of the day. Hopefully no more cable news firings. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> We're holding on for dear life. No, not really. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you back here tomorrow. Goodbye.